This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by bass Morris Robinson. Every time I open my mouth, I feel like I have something to prove. And I think I want to keep that edge until I retire. Robinson sang the role of the Grand Inquisitor in L.A. Opera's recent run of Verdi's Don Carlo and takes the role of Parsi Rustomji in Satyagraha by Philip Glass, opening October 20th at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. He'll tell us about his journey from playing college football on scholarship at the Citadel to leaving a good corporate job for a career in opera. It's great to welcome you to this L.A. Opera podcast. Very, very clearly bass <laughs> voice. Yeah, I, it's hard to uh, to hide my voice type when I talk, people know. So yeah, can't tell secrets, can't whisper, apparently. So, you can't whisper? I don't have an inside voice, apparently. Oh, I got you. Yeah. See, people think my voice is deep. It's more resonant than deep. So, uh, but yeah, you know, it's uh, I wear it. I wear it outside, apparently. So yeah, I'm a bass. <laughs> when did you first start singing? Well, it's it's a long story, but my mother made me audition for the Atlanta Boys Choir when I was seven years old. And in school back then, every day we'd have to sing, My country tis of thee sweet. And I was a soprano. And I was the first soprano. So I sang that, and they let me in Atlanta Boys Choir. And uh, I was like a strong first soprano. But they needed help with second soprano, so he moved me over to second soprano. Not that my voice is dropping. I just had a, I guess I had a, a resonant voice then too. But uh, I did that and I did church choir. And then I um, quit the choir to play the drums. That was like the cool thing to do in church. So I was a church drummer for years. But my mother knew I could sing. And she always was on me about singing. I never wanted to sing. I mean, I enjoyed music always. But, you know, I was a drummer and I played a little piano and, you know, that kind of thing. I didn't sing again until I got to high school. My mother made me audition for the School of the Arts. Because I was in the band. That was cool. And uh, the, the irony of it is, halfway through the first marching band football game, I realized that I was in the band. I want to be a football player. Hmm. So I quit the band. But because I went to a school of the arts, I had to be in an arts program. So I quit the band and joined the chorus. What instrument were you playing in the band? Baritone horn. Okay. Yeah. And I played drums at church. But I was a baritone horn player. And uh, I... About spring ball, when spring ball came up, I went to my band director, and I just made, like, second chair all-city band, and it's a big deal. I said, hey, I'm giving it up. I'm going to play football. And he actually came out to the football field to ask me if I was making the right choice. And I was like, dude, this is what I want to do. I want to be with a cool guy. So <laughs> I ended up joining the chorus full-time to play football. Yeah. And that was kind of, I never knew that I'd be doing this for a living. So. I mean, given the story, it, it, it makes sense. But the sentence, I ended up joining the chorus so I could play football, is not one that I think I've heard before. I, not one that is very popular, I'm sure. You know, But uh, <laughs> any way to get girls, I guess, if you can do both of those things, it works. That certainly wasn't my mindset at the time. But, you know, I've always enjoyed music. And when I joined the chorus, my, my junior year, we did the Mozart Requiem. And, you know, you have to audition for the solos. And I got all the solos for the Mozart Requiem. So I'd seen the chorus and the solos, but yeah, we had the tuba, mirum, spargen, so, and uh, the whole thing. So we did that. We toured Europe, toured Europe with it, you know, so I, I got my taste of classical music then. And then my senior year rolled around and we did Haydn's Creation, and I got the bass solos for that. 
And I was also forced by the music director there to be in the tour show. We had a kind of a Broadway musical type of uh, variety show where I actually had to wear sequins vests and tights. Yeah, that, that went over really well with the football team. <laughs> um, but yeah, we did stuff like that. I sang Hello, Dolly, like Satchimo with a growly voice. And I sang The Impossible Dream. And yeah, I did, I did that all through high school. So I had music scholarship offers. People would hear me in performance and say, you know, we give you a scholarship. You know, CCM offered me, Eastman offered me. But so the Citadel to play football. And I ended up taking a football scholarship. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You, I imagine, could have reminded your football teammates that they also wear tights, just not sequins. Uh, <laughs> that's the conversation you try to veer away from. <laughs> in, in high school, you know, uh, and kids are kids. So the maturation level in the high school was not one that accepted very fondly the, the captain of the football team being in sequins. Now, because I was a captain, I was a big guy. No one really gave me a hard time about it, but they certainly had jokes when I sang at assemblies. They'd sit in the front row and make fun of me. But uh, when I got to college, it became more of an embracing thing. They, because no one knew this about me, I would do something, sing a national anthem, and the guys would hear me go, yo, you did that? Yo, that was you, dog? You know, so <laughs> then they became fascinated with it. Then it's like, yo, leave my girlfriend a message, you know? So it became a phenomenon type of thing, but uh, I was very much jot. That's what I did, and I actually sang... Directed the gospel choir, played for the gospel choir, and uh, didn't sing as much until about my soft, junior year in college, sophomore year in college, when I heard this one kid sing the Lord. No, he sang Oh Holy Night at the Christmas candlelight service for the Citadel. It's a big deal down in South Carolina. You know, the Corps of Cadets, they put on their uniforms, they, they light candles up to the chapel, and like, it's a big, beautiful chapel there. And uh, I heard this one kid sing uh, Oh Holy Night, and I was like... Pfft. <laughs> way to hear me try this <laughs> it was kind of a way to get the guys off your back too because at the military academy when you're a freshman you know you're nothing but I started singing in the battalion one night and the upperclassmen heard me and made everyone shut up because he used to make the knob sing Christmas carols to the upperclassmen <laughs> and I started singing Oh Holy Night and they went you know so then I became the singing knob so every night I had to sing and you know it was just always something that I kind of just did you know it was nothing I ever foresaw as being a way to have a career or earn a living. It was just something I could do. And it was like, yeah, I went to this high school performing arts. They told me how to sing this way. You want to hear it? That's cool. And that was it, you know, so. But Oh Holy Night's all about the high note, and you're you're a bass. So. Yeah, but I got good high notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell people all the time, um, you're not considered a good bass because you can sing low. You're considered a good bass because you can carry that darkness and that depth and that color up through the range. And if you can sing as a bass, E naturals and F, F sharps, then you can have a career. Mm-hmm. You can sing, you can open up to the bigger repertoire. You can't sing the Grand Inquisitor, for instance, or or Norma, or Vasil that I sing here, or Zachariah and Nabucco. I mean, they test your limits on both ends. And the Inquisitor, although compacted into one big scene, you expose everything. You sing all the way from a low E all the way to high F. And you have to sing a few of those. So... And it has to be powerful, and it has to be dark, and it has to be menacing, and, you know, so it takes very much control and almost a virtuosic operation of one's instrument to be able to pull that off. Hmm. So I've worked really hard to be able to hone those things in, and so, but I naturally had high notes. I could sing, oh, no, I divine. I did that often, so yeah, it was fine. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's very interesting. So offensive linemen at the Citadel. Mm-hmm. Um, and when did opera become a part of, of your life then? Well, opera kind of came about 
um, I auditioned for a chorus in Washington, D.C. called the Choral Art Society, which is very much like the Mass Chorale here. Um, Norman Scribner heard me, and I wasn't prepared for this audition. I walked in and sang the Mozart Requiem Tuba Mirum, and he heard that and said, you know, you should be singing a lot, you know, with that voice. So he put me in his chorus, but he also took me to the Congressional Black Caucus to sing the National Anthem and to the Washington Wizards game to sing. And, you know, I'm doing all these other events. And it started catching on that I had maybe something special at that point. But then I left 3M, which had me in Washington, D.C., and moved to Boston. And so while there, the iron was still kind of hot. So I sang for the New England Conservatory. Uh, They had a weekend program for working professionals called Continuing Education. And I walked in there and asked for an audition, filled out the paperwork. They granted me a time, and I sang the national anthem for them. And the lady stopped playing at the end of the anthem and said, have you ever considered singing opera? Because your voice is well suited for it. I said, no. She says, well, I want you to join our opera studio. It's 650 bucks. So I did that, and I got into a production. We did scenes. So here I am. I've never sung in Italian. I've never sung in German. I've never sung anything like this before. Um, Recitative. And I'm just learning it by rote and doing it on the weekends. But it was fun. It was fun to have an outlet to do something that, you know, I was freakishly able to do at a younger age, but I found it to be fun. And it was an outlet, and it wasn't selling widgets and, you know, calling on accounts. So I enjoyed that. And I got into a musical called Michael Bauf's uh, Satanella, where they got me to play the devil. And it was at that performance where Sharon Daniels from Boston University heard me and walked up to me and said, I don't know if you want to do this, but if you make it into my program, which I think you can, I'm going to change your life. So you have to make a decision. Do you want to be a businessman? Or do you want to be an officer? And I was like, let's go for it. You know? So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it all came about. What an amazing story. I mean, this is not the story that um, is a typical classical music opera singer or instrumentalist story of slaving away in conservatories and being all isolated. You, I mean, this is, this is a story of, <laughs> Having talent and being discovered and then developing that talent, yeah? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, I can, as a good friend of mine tells me all the time, you can put your story on two pages and it looks nice and concise, but the amount of hard work one has to do when you decide at the age of 30 (laughs) to leave your corporate job, buy your next-door neighbor's sob, turn in your company car, get a job at Best Buy from 6 to 10 in the morning, and then go to school and study opera after that in Boston when you live in New Hampshire. And you're completely green. And everyone in the program, because this is a Opera Institute at Boston University, everyone already had their master's degree in music. So they'd already put in four years of undergrad and two years of grad school at least. And here I am, like, how do you say that again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? You know, so I'm I'm learning on the fly. And they gave me a role. I got Bluebeard and Bluebeard's Castle, but we did it in English, so that saved me. But I think they just wanted to test me, you know, and I, I mean, I, that's a role. It's a role. Yeah. It's the show. You know, you're yeah. the show. Um, but I was doing that. But I also auditioned for the chorus at Boston Lyric Opera. And they heard me and said, hey, we we got something. We want you to take this music home and learn it. And it was for the King and Aida. I came back the next week and sang through that. And they offered me the role of the King and Aida. So my first month of singing, studying music, I got a pretty major role with the largest company in New England. So that was kind of like God's way of saying... You made the right choice, son. Stick with it. So it just went, and that's when it went haywire. It went haywire from there. Yeah. In a good way, haywire. Well, yeah, I mean, good way, stressful. You know, it was really (laughs) kind of fun because I was too dumb to know how big that was. 
And all my friends were like, dude, do you understand? No, I don't know. I'm just going to see McKean. <laughs> I don't know. But as I realized how big of a deal it was, then the pressure started because then the expectation is you have to rise to a level that, you know, my voice sounded a lot better than I was. And so I had to grow artistically and musically into what God gave me. And also I had to use that instrument in different ways because now I'm singing every day, I'm learning roles, I'm practicing, I'm taking voice lessons. So it became very much an obstacle that I wanted to overcome. You know, I wanted to do as, learn the most that I could. So Stephen Lord took me on his wing and took me to St. Louis every year. And Boston Lyric Hopper gave me three more roles and Boston University gave me roles. And I was just constantly learning stuff and producing mm -hmm. and trying to stay healthy. And yeah, I learned a lot in those, that year and a half, two years. Yeah. What do you remember about the first time you sang on the stage at the Metropolitan Opera? Well, the first time I sang on stage at Metropolitan Opera was to audition for the Young Artist Program. Uh, I had placed third in the region for New England. That was my, I didn't do it my first year singing. I sang my second year singing. And uh, I placed third in the region, but they wanted me to come down and do a List Hall audition. So I sang for the List Hall. And then they wanted me to do a private coaching with John Fisher, who was the head of music staff. And I sang for him. And I was working in St. Louis. So I flew back. And I walked on the Met stage and I just looked around and said, holy cow. How did this happen? Yeah, I was, I, I was, I knew the enormity of it because my dad was like, well, what's the big deal? You know, you, you're going to sing for some conductor in some theater. I'm like, dad, you're a Baptist preacher, right? So just imagine if you had to go preach a sermon one-on-one -on -one and Jesus was in the audience, you know, like he was right there looking at you. How would you feel? He says, okay, I get it. And I sang Oasis and then I sang, I'll tell you this très modio. And, uh, Afterwards, they said, hey, we want you to be part of our Young Artist Program. So that was that. And then I didn't do my debut my first year. I did my debut the second year. But I'd been to hundreds of performances by then. I mean, I was literally a nerd. I was going to everything and listening to everybody. One of the guys is who I'm singing with tomorrow night, you know, producer for Lenanto. I I remember hearing him and thinking he was Mike because that voice was so loud and present. But to finally get a chance to be on that stage, and I was in a cast of Fidelio with legends at that, you know, still legends, and I had like two lines, and I practiced those lines over and over and over, and I wanted to make it a moment, and it was just, I won't say it was a gratifying feeling, it was more so like, this is all happening so fast, I haven't taken a moment to sit back and say, wow, this happened, and I think even today, and I've been singing now professionally since 99, so almost 20 years, I'll read an article, I'll do something, I'll do a, you know advertisement for a company, and I think it's pretty cool, but I never just sat back and, even yet, to say, whoa, <laughs> what the heck just happened, you know? Because when you're in the moment, you don't have time to sit back and read the press clippings or praise yourself. Yeah, I send out reviews, and my parent, you know, my family loves that kind of stuff. If my mom were alive, she'd probably have them plastered all over her wall, but, you know, my dad, you got to good reviews sometimes. They like that kind of stuff, but I... And my friends love it, but I sit back and really it's always about what's the next project? What's the next opportunity for my for me to prove myself? When I was in the LA Times last year, I talked about how purists don't really believe the hype. Well, I've been doing this for 20 years now. I mean, either it's real or it's a an illusion that I've been getting away with for years. But no, it's um I don't take time to go sit back and cross my legs and say, Yeah, I did that. Yeah. It's always like, what I got to learn next? <laughs> what city am I in next? You know, so that's that's my life. Yeah. 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 I mean, I see um, 
and maybe this is too obvious a connection, but I see, you know, a similar mindset in the sporting world mm-hmm. of, you know, Bill Belichick famously is like, we're on to Cincinnati, you know, we're yeah. on to the next yeah. thing where it doesn't matter how great, you know, our performance was, mm-hmm. it's on to the next thing, right? And that's, I mean, that's a, a very common theme that you see in the, in press conferences after big wins. Yeah, well, you don't celebrate your wins and you don't lull in your losses on the football field. In competition, you can't. You can't afford to because there's always something else to do. So I learned that just like I learned uh, I can't worry about the guy that's lined up in front of me and how much he can bench press and if he's all-world or all-conference or all-American. You know, he's going to be there when I get there, and I'm going to have to knock him on his butt or I'm going to get knocked on my butt. So i got to concentrate what i got to do. I can't think about how good he's supposed to be, and I just think about, all right, he's going to be number 74. You know, that's that's it. And I got to move him out of the way so my running back can so I don't, you know, you can't sweat that stuff. You know, you think about the enormity of it, then you psych yourself out. Yeah. And yeah. that's been helping me a lot. You know, I have moments now. I mean, you know what it's like to walk out in Dorothy Channel Pavilion and be on your knees and sing an aria? You know? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I do. Yeah. And uh, and if I thought about it, I mean, I almost psych myself out with this Fredrick Filinetto thing because I'm like, <sighs> I sang with him before in Vebrier, Switzerland. And we were doing Simone Bocanegra. And he was singing that famous aria. And I was sitting right next to him at the first rehearsal. And when he opened his mouth, the ground started shaking. <laughs> his whole body was vibrating. And I looked at Jordan Bish, who, the, who was the other, other bass that was there with me, a young artist. And we both were like, holy cow. And all I could think about was, okay, I've done this role before. I was successful with this company, with this guy next to me. I was successful with this company, with this guy next to me. Oh, crap. <laughs> Here comes the big boss. You know, this is like grandpa. You know, this is the guy. And uh, it got to me because I was like, okay, this is this is enormous. You know, I'm going to get smothered. This is going to be the first time that I walk on stage and I'm not the most present voice of the lower voice, voices. But then I just tried to forget about it, show up and do my job. And it's been going really well. It's, you know, it's a competitive edge that I want to not, out seeing somebody, but I want to match the level of artistry, the level of vocal talent on display. I want to be, I don't want to be the drop off. You know, I don't want to be the fluke that finally met his match. So yeah, every time I open my mouth, I feel like I got something to prove. Yeah. And I think I want to keep that edge until I retire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, I mean the scene in Don Carlo, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's the, the major, major yeah. scene in this opera. Yeah. Um, and and with him, with with that amazing voice, that was the first after that aria. Yeah, he sings yeah. that aria, and then I got to come out and follow yeah. that. You know, so yeah, good luck. You know, <laughs> what do you do to get ready for that moment? You could ask the people backstage. I'm usually pacing back and forth. I stop talking because I'm a big jokester. I'm pretty laid back, but right before most of the times I walk on stage, I'm pretty focused. But, you know, I listen to him do his thing, and I'm I'm learning that role also, so I'm just watching everything he does on the monitor. And then I channel in. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Don't get in my way. I'm focused. This is game time. And the competition is level of art, not vocal volume, not vocal size, not outing the next person. It is, this is a world-class legendary artist who just laid it down. And I got to go out there. And I better lay it down because this is the most famous scene of the whole opera, probably of any bass repertoire. You know, this duet is like one of the most famous scenes ever. I mean, I've watched everyone do that. So, yeah, 
you try not to think of that part. You just go out there and give it a go. You know, do the best you can. I'm prepared. I know it. I've worked hard. And now it's time for the rubber to meet the road. And I'll let the reviewers and everyone else sort it out after the fact. So, yeah. But you are you say you are also learning the other role. What um, What's the timeline on that? Um, well, so far it's two years. Um, I can't talk about the company because they've announced it. But, yeah, I was offered it. I think I was singing in the Aria in the parking lot on the way home from a show in the city. And the guy was like, have you ever done this role? I was like, nah. <laughs> and then I got a call that I'm doing this role. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm excited about that. I kind of like playing the Inquisitor more than, well, I haven't played Philip yet. I think Philip is going to allow me to explore some emotional things that I don't get to explore with the Inquisitor. But vocally, you know, it's it's one and done with the Inquisitor. You come out and you lay it down. You start out and you just, the scene builds. You know, it's like anything you can sing, I can sing higher. Anything you can mm-hmm. sing, I can sing louder. Oh, you said that? Well, I'm going to say this. Oh, yeah, you think you got me? And it's just a battle of wits. It's a battle of will. It's a battle of church and state. It's a battle of authority. It's a battle of power. And, you know, I'm facing the king. So in this scene, in this opera house, in this company, in this with this guy, <laughs> all of those things happen in real life and in the drama, you know. I'm facing, I'm singing with, I'm in a scene with a power struggle with one of the most admired bases of the operatic repertoire in the past century. And here I am, a boy from Georgia that kind of fell into this, and I find myself on stage next to him. But I got to bring it. And he brings it. So then I got to bring it more. And then he's like, okay, I'm bringing this. And it's like, okay, well, I'm bringing it. So, and that's how the scene is built. Yeah, that's the drama and the music. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it because I get, I get excited about it. And I want to I want to be good. And I want to be – I want to serve the opera. I want to serve the, the, the scene. I want to serve the drama. And it doesn't work for the Inquisitor ain't bringing it, you know. So, yeah. yeah. When's the last time you played the drums? You know what? When I was working on the East Coast a lot in New York or even in Dallas or Florida, I could fly back home and play church on Sundays. When I started singing in California more and Chicago, and um, it got less convenient for me to do so. So I couldn't just fly back on Sundays and play. But I've been playing the drums at my church since about 2000 and probably 2009, 10. And I played solidly there until about 2016. I yeah. stopped. So my drums are still at home. I haven't set them up in over a year and a half, two years. But I, I'm getting the itch again. I just don't have the time. So... But yeah, I play, I mean, I could still consider myself a drummer. I probably play drums better than I sing. Most people won't believe that, but I'm I'm more comfortable behind a drum set than I am on stage singing. So, oh, yeah. Interesting. So, not only Don Carlo, um, but also Satyagraha here at LA Opera, mm-hmm. um, and that's opening on the 20th. And the question that I'm asking all the singers going into Satyagraha is, first of all, how's your Sanskrit? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it's not the easiest language I've ever sung in. I'm trying to be fair here. A lot of the vowels, as we've learned them, are very similar. Hmm. So when learning music, as a singer, we all have our methods. Some people learn by rote, and they'll sit there and study all the words and memorize it that way. I do that, but when I'm singing something, I know that when I'm accelerating, when I'm excelling through the range, that my next vowel on this E flat is an E. So I, it helps me remember the word. So, you know, all that, these things all come into play. In this language, there's none of that because everything is so similar. And because my, and I'm the only person with a big aria, 
My big aria is rapid fire. There's words after words after words after words after words, and they all sound very similar, but they're just slightly different. I'm having a hard time. Mm. It's it's mm. a tough thing. But I would normally know that I'm doing something in advance, and I would fly to New York and hire a coach. I go to about the same two or three people. I have a guy in Atlanta I work with. I have a guy in New York I work with. I go see my teacher. But none of them know Sanskrit. <laughs> like, nobody knows Sanskrit. No one can do So I called LA Opera, and I was like, look, we're doing it. Y'all know it. Let's do it. So, I, you know, I came out here because I was doing Don Carlo. I was here a month before we started rehearsal. Anyway, so I got on top of it and, uh, you know, been chomping away at it. The music is beautiful. It's very uh, difficult. It tests all of your musical acumen academically, your ability to count, your ability to sort out measures, you know. Is this the seventh time I've sung this or the sixth time or, yeah. Yeah, in nine, you know, nine twelfths, you know, (laughs) or something like some weird key signature, like 13, 17. I'm making that up, but not really. It's, (laughs) uh, It's very complicated, but, you know, we're making it work because it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of music. It's a beautiful piece of artistry, and I'm looking forward to it. I still got three weeks to get it going, so uh, I'm yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to the first chorus rehearsal so I can get there and do my thing. This role is slightly different for me in that, well, there are no subtitles. I mean, we're kind of not really playing characters per the director's advice to us. We are kind of helping narrate a story, or narrate a journey. Uh, no subtitles, no real character responsibilities displaying this imagery, this mindset, this journey to try to take the audience with us on this journey. Uh, but my first big aria is I'm the character of, uh, I'm, I'm Gandhi's best friend. And it starts off where I'm kind of timid to step up in front of people and lead, to argue about oppression and talk about all these atrocities and, and how this is not right and this is injustice. But I'm not that leader, so I'm a little bit apprehensive about doing this, but he encourages me to do so. So as the time goes through the aria, as the music continues, I gain more confidence. So then I turn to Zachariah in Nabucco in the first scene, you know, but I have to build to that. And the director asked me, he says, are you uncomfortable being timid? I was like, I don't think I've ever had to be. <laughs> he says, well, that's interesting because, you know, I'm as a base. You walk out and you command. I mean, even in this role, I'm the Inquisitor, and I'm commanding the king. Like, I'm running things with him. All of my roles are authoritative figures, mm. and this guy bolsters himself into such, but through a process, through the music. So it takes me a minute to get to the point where I'm comfortable and I'm yelling and screaming and telling people what to do and get them rah-rah and excited, but it ends up being that type of role for me, too. So, And then after that, it's mostly, like I said, taking people on the journey and it's an ensemble piece, so I get to blend with the other other singers. So I'm enjoying it. It's a great process. It's it's beautiful music. We pride ourselves on the sextet that is written in like eight different time signatures. That we got it right this time. And so when it's <laughs> over, with, we all clap. And, and you know, we still got three weeks to work on it. So I'm I'm expecting that we're going to nail it and have a wonderful time with it. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Have you sung much Philip Glass before, or is this a new experience? No, it's a new experience. I've never sung Philip Glass before. I'm not familiar with his music. I knew about Akhenaten because they did it back in Boston when I was a student there. Um, and I think they did it here. Last I, year, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, that Satyagraha has been around. I've not seen it or participated, obviously. But, yeah, I'm excited about it. It's, uh, it's a different, different thing for me. And I think that, you know, Willard White told me years ago that, in this business, you can never get tired of learning. 
is always something to learn. And this is stretching my limits and expanding my uh, my palate, both musically and knowledgeably. I mean, I'm learning a lot, so I'm in, I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you worked yet with Grant Gershon? Is he involved yet? Yeah, Grant's here, yeah. and I've worked with him before. Okay. I, I sang the Verdi Requiem with Master Chorale next door, Disney Concert Hall, and I worked with him also. I worked with the chorus before because I'd sang the Beethoven Ninth at the Hollywood Bowl with with the L.A. Phil, and they were the chorus. And I think last year, I think I did it with the New York Philharmonic, and the Master Chorale was the chorus we used in yeah, Santa Barbara. That's right. That's with right. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. I think we've done some other things together. I can't remember. I mean, I've been around LA quite a bit, and I've seen Grant quite a bit. So, yeah. cool guy, real, real laid back, yeah. um, California dude. You know. So yeah, we're having a good time. Yeah, I like working with him. He's a good guy. Excellent. Yeah. Later this season, you'll be back at Walt Disney Concert Hall for uh, Mahler Eight yeah. with Gustavo and the LA Phil. Apparently, that's the first time Mahler Eight will have been done in that concert hall. So you have a chance to really raise the roof. You know what? I just did that for the first time. And uh, I learned it while I was here doing uh, Rigoletto. I was working with the music staff here to teach it to me because I knew I had to go to the BBC proms in London and sing it. And uh, it went well. I enjoyed it. I mean, talk about stretching yourself to limits. I think you have to sing a low C in this thing. But you also have to sing two very exposed F sharps. And it's like, you know, I mean, it fits right down my alley, though. So I'm having, I enjoyed it then, and I'm looking forward to uh, raising the roof over here with Dudamel. It's my first time working with him. Although I've worked with Phil before, I haven't been able to hook up with him. We've tried several different things to do, and it just hasn't worked out. But this time, I get a chance to do this piece with him. So by the time I get to him, it'll be my third time, because I have another one between. But mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna be That's going to be amazing in that building, with that sound, and that orchestra, and I don't know how many cries they're going to use, but yeah. probably five or six. You know, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be cool. Yeah. I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah. He always takes it up to eleven, so <laughs> like, just turn it <laughs> up. Turn ten you know? and turn eleven. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll be on eleven too. Nice. <laughs> uh, what do you like to do for downtime while you're here in LA? Normally, when I'm working on one opera, I would have already had some downtime. That's true. Good point. <laughs> I have no downtime this time. I've not been to Santa Monica. I usually go to Santa Monica, walk the pier, then I walk. The beach, you know, the, the road back there. I'll walk that for miles just to get some exercise in. I'll do the Santa Monica stairs. I'll go to the perch, the rooftop. I'll go to the standard rooftop. Um, I always have at least one meal at Mastro's on the water down at uh, Malibu. I haven't done anything but work. Like, I was working all day today. Yeah. I went home and had a salad. I came back. I'm doing the podcast. I got a show tomorrow. I got rehearsal Friday, rehearsal Saturday, show Sunday. Rehearsal, you know, it's just, I have no time off. So I have no social life this time. Once uh, Satya Graha is up and running and Don Carlo closes, I might be able to take my my shoes off and relax a minute. I have tried desperately to watch as much football as I can in between rehearsals. And I've downloaded the ESPN app on my phone. So I'm in my dressing room during Don Carlo watching the game. You know, I'm trying to get it all in. And I'm also, my son is in the eighth grade. So he's doing all this algebra and geometry stuff that, He's sending me screenshots of of WhatsApp, so I'm in rehearsal studying Sanskrit and solving algebra problems at the same time. So it's a uh, no big deal. Yeah, well, it's forcing me to have balance. In fact, the other day I was like, "Anybody know how to do this?" And they were like, "You're on your own." We studied music, so I've had to access some knowledge that I've let go a long time ago. You know, the hard drive is getting kind of full. So, but no, I mean, I'm enjoying the process. I 
I think I love working more than anything. So mm-hmm. it's fun being in the building. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in here every day. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Falcons fan or just fan of the game? All right. So there's the deal. Bought Falcons season tickets when they went to the Super Bowl. I was here for the Super Bowl watching it at my apartment down at 8th and Grand. And uh, they lost to New England. And I was in the street screaming, yelling, throwing stuff. I was so ticked off because I mean that was a that was a loss. It I was mean, over. The game was over. I'm calling my friends. It yeah. finally happened. I've hated the Falcons since I was seven years old because they went to the playoffs against the Dallas Cowboys and Staubach got hurt and I knew we were gonna win the game and then the backup punter, Danny White, came in and played quarterback and beat the Falcons. So they broke my heart then, and I haven't had anything to do with them. <laughs> and then they got pretty good, but I never believed in them. When they were going to the Super Bowl, I bought season tickets because mm. they're building a new stadium. And I bought seats, and I've only been in one game. I've been putting them on Facebook. I've been selling them because they just break my heart. Yeah. I'm trying. I'm yeah. really trying yeah. to support them, but, you know, they just they can't get together. Last week we scored 34 or 35 points and lost. By one. Yeah. yeah. The week before, we scored 30-something points and lost by three or something. Yeah. It was – we lost to New Orleans at home. It's like, ugh. So, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. But I do uh, – I still watch football. I I love it. And it doesn't matter who's playing. It's always on. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a Citadel football fan. I went to Citadel. We are having a rough go at it. You know, it's not the easiest place to play. It's not the easiest place to get recruits. And now that a lot of other schools around us have started 1AA programs – competition is great for getting a good recruit so but you know we got some good kids we have a lot of speed and of course they're civil guys so they're gonna have heart and i probably got in trouble a few weeks ago they had just lost and they were owing to and the Citadel football tweet put out our next two opponents are ranked number seven and number 10 in the conference and in the country and they beat such and such and the old ball player came out in me and i was kind of like with a lot of profanity what are you guys talking about the accomplishments of your next two opponents for? You're 0-2. It doesn't matter what they've done. you got work to do. You better take your butt out there. And, and, and they won. <laughs> and nice. they won. A lot of alumni are like, that's exactly what they need to hear. So I'm like getting rah-rah. And then they lost last weekend because uh, they got beat by a better team. So we play Alabama for the last game of the year. Oh, that's no big deal. I don't know how it's going to work. I would, I, I, you know, I talked to my guys. Hey, maybe they'll be resting all their play. No, that, that's mm, not a college thing. It's, it's not a Saban thing. You know, yeah. Saban's going to put his foot in your throat and st- stomp on it. But I called to my old guys. And, you know, when I was there, we actually beat a lot of D1 schools. We beat some SEC schools. We beat ACC schools. We beat, you know, we were pretty good. I would rather my guys go out there and play against Alabama because I think we could take them. Nice. <laughs> you never lose that confidence. You yeah. just lose the yeah. ability, right? I so. love it. I love it. Well, thanks so much for your time, especially thank when you. you're so busy. Thank you, man. I'm honored to be here and honored to be part of the podcast. And uh, thank you for having me. Bass Morris Robinson is singing the role of Parsi Rustomji in L.A. Opera's run of Satyagraha by Philip Glass. He also just wrapped up a run as the Grand Inquisitor in Verdi's Don Carlo at L.A. Opera. Satyagraha runs from October 20 through November 11 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and also stars Sean Panikar as Mahatma Gandhi and So Young Park as Miss Schlesen. The production directed by Philippe McDermott and the conductor is L.A. Opera's resident conductor, Grant Gershon. More information is available at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen.
If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.